Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Chaddock for another episode. Today, I am going to be interviewing Dana Lerner, and she's going to be talking to us about attachment grief. I came across her name and her story in an article I read in the Psychotherapy Networker, which actually has the title Attachment Grief. And so I would encourage you guys to look up that article. But I also want to tell you a bit about her background before we get started. Dana Lerner is an LCSW and a graduate of Columbia School of Social Work and the four-year psychoanalytic psychotherapy training program at the Institute for Contemporary Psychotherapy. She's been in private practice in New York City for over 25 years. She works with individuals, couples, and families. She also treats anxiety disorders, depression, OCD, bereavement, and PTSD. She's trained in modern analytic group therapy and she runs groups for trauma survivors and bereaved adults she uses a variety of different treatment approaches she's also a founding member of families for safe streets which confronts the epidemic of traffic violence through advocacy and emotional support and you are going to hear the importance of that topic of traffic violence in the story that dana is going to share today about her own loss of a child and attachment grief so please stay tuned and we will be coming right up with this interview Supporting children and families who have experienced great loss and endured extreme trauma is a daunting task. At Chaddock, we have the experience and longevity to understand the type of support needed to keep the best and brightest engaged with this work. In July, the Knowledge Center at Chaddock will launch the next session of the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute for helpers who seek to be rejuvenated and revitalized in their work with children and families. This type of renewal and confidence is a natural byproduct of gaining specialized knowledge, advanced skills, consultation, guidance, mentorship, and most importantly, being in a community providing the experience of being seen and understood. We have designed an experience and a soft place to land where all of these needs will be met in one central place. For more information on the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute, to join the waitlist for more information or to sign up, visit tkcchaddock.org. So hello, Dana. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I I really appreciate it. I'm really happy to be here. 
Yeah. So I was shared with listeners, you know, before you hopped on that uh, I learned about you and the amazing work that you're doing through an article that you wrote for the Psychotherapy Networker. So thank you for doing that, because that's how I found you. And I also feel like it was such a good piece to get more understanding of this topic of attachment grief out there. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy you saw the paper. And yeah, I, I it's, it's something that's, you know, very important for me to want to get out to explain things to therapists to help other parents. Um, so the, I was lucky that the article got a lot of a lot of people saw it. Yes, so. yes, good. So I shared uh, some of your formal training and your credentials. But if you could share now, I mean, first, just your own story of how you got into therapy. Um, and then, you know, your story as it relates to our topic today of attachment grief. Yeah, it's funny, because I was trying to think of when did I know I wanted to be a therapist. And I remembered when I was, I think, in third grade, I brought a bunch of friends home, and I made them sit in a circle. And I said, we have to talk. <laughs> so you're already starting group so, therapy. Yeah. And I, I do group work. I love group. And I think group is wonderful. And I, I realized, oh, my God, I was, you know, probably nine years old. And these, these kids came back with me, and they sat down where I told them. So I think it goes back a long way yes yes and and so then you eventually opened a practice in new york new york Mm -hmm. city correct yes i did yeah i i did my psychoanalytic training here at icp in new york and eventually opened a practice and um really just feel very fortunate of having a lot of wonderful patients. And um, I worked a lot with trauma. I I studied trauma. I did a lot of, I do a lot of trauma um, types of techniques and different, different things um, like EMDR and and those sorts of things. Yes. So, yeah. So, and I've been doing that for a while. Yes. And, Could you share with listeners your story of what happened in your family and, you know, how this article came about and why you feel it is just so important that people understand this special kind of grief? I guess I could call it that attachment grief. Yeah. Well, um, my son was killed um, on January 10th. 2014 can barely say it um he was nine years old his name was cooper stock and he was an amazing kid just everybody loved him he was just the sweetest funniest most irreverent child one could imagine um and you know uh he was he was killed by a taxi driver and it's you know I'm every parent's biggest nightmare, biggest fear, and it truly was mine. And um, over time, I um, I just started realizing I I just started realizing over time that I, that I felt that people were not understanding what I was going through, and as is very common in our country, people are, are sort of like, "Aren't you better now?" you know, why haven't you gotten over it? Um, you know, you shouldn't be upset. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I, I would get very frustrated when people would say those types of things to me. And I felt completely misunderstood. And I'm in a group with other mothers and we, we chat all the time. And, you know, we all over time have been saying the same thing. Nobody understands what we're going through. Nobody understands how this kind of grief is different. Uh, why can't we, why can't we explain it to anybody? How can we explain it to anybody? So um, it was like right before the pandemic, I, I, I had been, you know, I had been wanting to do some writing and I, I wanted to write about Cooper and, and the situation. And, um, and I felt like there was like these words that were kind of like on the tip of my tongue. Um, to, uh, some kind of terminology or something. And it was like, it was kind of crazy because I was just thinking, thinking, thinking and thinking there's gotta be something, there's something about this that has to have, there has to be some kind of way of explaining this using like, you know, psychoanalytic thought. And so this one experience kind of like really opened my eyes. Um, I was I was in the in my house upstate, and um, it was I think in the spring. It was right when when the pandemic started, and I looked out the window, and there was this fawn, this little baby deer that had been camouflaged in my garden. And I found out during the day that this is something that deer do. They go to get food and they leave their babies. And so here I am, you know, my baby's gone, and but I'm seeing this beautiful baby and this baby is calm and just breathing and sleeping. And, you know, and I'm like, where's the mother? Where's the mother? And started like panicking almost. Um, and then heard that, you know, I, I was talking to some people and like, you know, it could take as long as 12 hours. Anyway, I finally forced myself to go to sleep. And, you know, I woke up and I ran down the steps. I'm like, where is it? Where is it? You know, and, and the baby was gone. So I was thinking, okay, great. This is great. Everything's okay. And then it kind of hit me like, wait a second. What if the baby wasn't there when the mom came back? Because that's what happened to me. And my baby's not there anymore. And so... You know, one of the things I noticed about the farm was it was so peaceful. And I just thought, what would be going through the deer's mind if the baby's not there? Well, panic, you know, fear, panic, uh, worry, you know, anxiety. And that's and that's really what goes on in, in my mind a lot. And, and because it is um, such a sort of um it's it's such a horrible loss in the sense of you lose it's like an amputation it's like part of you is gone we we think about our children and my son was only nine and you know he was still like sometimes sleeping in bed with me and my husband he wanted to all the time but anyway so you know i was really used to like having him around and and close by and the feeling of this amputation of this like where is he? Where is he? In a sort of a constant panic of not knowing where he is. So after I saw that deer, I came in and I just opened up some a book and I started reading about Bowlby, you know, attachment theory. And I was like, wait, and I was sort of trying to find, is there anything that describes when a person when when the attachment person dies and there's there's a lot of literature about when when the you know when the parent dies but there's nothing really about when the child dies so i at that moment i said wait a minute this this is this is attachment and and i realized this, this is to me this is attachment grief 
And it's because the it's because, you know, the interest psychic connection between a person and their child, between a person and anybody who is incredibly important in, in their life, um, it never goes away. It doesn't go away. It's always there. So when I thought about that, I just kind of felt the sigh of relief, like, okay, this this makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um and, um, you know, spoke to my other mom friends about it. They also felt, gosh, this does make sense. And um, eventually I um, yeah, decided I wanted to write a paper on it. And one of the reasons as well is that, and I know this as a therapist, that people don't know what to do when you have a grieving parent. I, I don't know if I would have known, quite frankly. Um, so I want people to understand sort of like where we are, where many of us are. For me, it's been over nine years, but I am still yearning for him. This morning I woke up and I was like, where is he? You know, like, it, mm-hmm. it, you know, they, people say that you're not supposed to yearn. Well, that's just not right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you always yearn yes. for your child. Yes. Um, so some yes. of these things that people were making these comments and, 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 you know, kind of making grief almost like sound pathological really uh, is bothersome to me. And um, so I really wanted therapists to know what I have learned about um, how to work with somebody, how to work with parents who are who are in this state, this 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 altered state in which, in my opinion, you 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 really don't ever completely come back from. Yes. Well, I was just thinking this metaphor that you used about an amputation and think it's very striking and then i thought about phantom pain exactly exactly you're you're being told the limb is gone but they're going to the doctor saying but no i feel it it's still there and just i was just taking that analogy a bit further and thinking that seems relevant too. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this amputation metaphor is something that a lot of us talk about. Um, absolutely. It's like we, you know, that's why like people look at us and we look and they're like, you look good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't know what's what's going on inside of me. They don't know everything that's not there anymore. They don't know that I've exhausted and that I'm carrying the weight, a weight of so much pain on my shoulders. Um, and so, right, that, that, that's the kind of thing that helps explain to people more about what this, what this is like. Yes. When you yes. live with this. Yes. And I, I do have, you know, I started thinking about this after we started talking together about this interview and just in my own circle of professional friends who are very into attachment theory, there's four who have lost children. So, I mean, this, yeah, it's, it's just, um, there's so much there. And I think one of the bigger picture things that you talk about is our culture here in the United States. We're not good with dealing with grief period, you know, talking about, you know, some, some other places, maybe there's more talk about this or more ceremony and ritual or things like this. So, you know, what, I know you shared thoughts about this. What, what are your feelings about just grief in general in the United States? Well, I do think that we do a terrible job 
in the United States of, of letting letting people grieve, letting people allowing people to have their sorrow, allowing people to have their pain. And, you know, as a as a bereaved parent, I mean, we are we're like everybody's biggest nightmare. Um, somebody was just telling me yesterday that some they were they met somebody somewhere. And, you know, I'll go back actually for a second that, you know, our biggest nightmare is if someone says to us, how many children do you have? It's like what you have to go through in your mind. If you say my son died, then the other person might get freaked out. If you say um, I only have one child, then you feel bad because you're not acknowledging your other child. Mm -hmm. And so people, what I was going to say before is people literally physically step away sometimes when they see a mother. And this is what happened to a friend of mine who was at a wedding and her son died and and the person like recoiled from her. So as far as my frustration around why should we be treated like this? You know, why, why is it that people can't find some way to, to make, why can't it be okay to say that my child died without the fear of somebody, you know, saying something hurtful, freaking out. You know, some people have said to me, oh, I don't want to know about it. <laughs> um, you know, stuff like that. So so I feel like um, even, you know, like I said, general grieving in this country is is just, you know, it's like, I feel like sometimes I'm like, gosh, I wish everybody if I'm having a bad day, I wish that all the people that were sitting there with me right after he died, all the people sitting there, I wish they were with me now. And like mm-hmm. I said, that's nine, nine and a half years later that mm-hmm. we, we need people. We just need people. We become so isolated. And I do feel that our country and specifically, you know, now with the pandemic, I mean, this is it's, it's absurd. It's absurd how this remains something that's not supposed to be talked about. And for my in my ideas, there's so many more people whose children have died, even in the pandemic, because so many people died, like a million people died in the United States. And some a lot of these people, their children died. So I guess, you know, my wanting to, you know, use this term and form my formulating this term attachment grief is my wanting to bring it out into the open. Am I wanting to say this is what it is? This is oh, yeah, this is what I'm experiencing right now. This is why I, I feel the way I do. This is why I can't go out to dinner with you. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, this is why I can't do what whatever, because I'm, I'm grieving and and that that should be acknowledged and, and that people shouldn't be trying to get me out of it. I just I think it's wrong for somebody to be told that they're not allowed to grieve. Um, it's absurd, given the fact that we all die. It's quite absurd. It makes no sense, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's part of what I'm hoping my work will, you know, will will get through to people. And when you said, if you tell somebody, you know, this, this dreaded question of how many children do you have and, and somebody like recoiling physically, actually stepping back. And do you think it's that, I mean, you opened this up, our discussion with 
it's everyone's worst fear that something could happen to their child. Mm-hmm. And do you think it's like, oh no, like you're making this a reality and I, I just can't deal with it or? Um, I, think, I think, you know, what happens is unfortunately you, you kind of, it, I mean, it happened the minute he died people started looking at me differently. People started, mm. um, people, I mean, I, I would walk down the street and I would see people that I know and they would cross the street to go to the other side so we would not uh, walk by each other. And, and believe it or not, sometimes I was relieved by that because I couldn't deal with it either. I don't know, what do you, what do you say? You know, what do you say? But um, yeah, I think people are petrified of this, and um, we um, we just—it's it, very hard because you're always you're always in a situation where, as I said before, you're worried that somebody's going to say, "How many children do you have?" Or oh, or or and everybody talks about their children all the time. I have learned that everybody's always talking about their children, and that's really hard. Um, to hear, to have to hear, um, you know, other people talking about their children and their children getting married and their children having babies. And, and it's, it's so painful. Um, and I, I got an interesting email from somebody after they had read the, read the article and they said to me, I feel guilty that I'm envious of these other people. And I said, I wrote back to her and I said, you can feel whatever you want. You don't have to feel guilty. This is a completely normal feeling. Of mm-hmm. course, you're going to feel envy. It doesn't make you a bad person. It's a reality. Your child isn't there and theirs are. And I was like, wow, you know, people really even people who have lost their children are even wondering what is okay to say and what isn't, or what is okay to feel. Um, And that really struck me like, wow. Um, Because, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you're allowed to feel anything you want to. Yes. And, and I think one of the things that you seem to be really emphasizing from what I have read in your article that and to feel it as long as you need to feel it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That you can't put this timeline, you know, even though maybe we do in the DSM or something, you know, we put this cutoff where yeah. now it's pathological grief or something. And I think right. you're wanting to speak very strongly against that kind of thinking. I really do. I mean, I think that I, I was very upset, not surprised, but upset by uh, this whole prolonged grief, pathological grief. It feels like an insult and it's shaming to people. And that's the thing I worry about the most. People who are out there and they read something like this and then they feel shame, like, oh, there's something wrong with me. And and I just hate the idea of anybody having to go through that. Um, there is no time limit. There is no time limit. I mean, I understand that if somebody is having a problem where they're not functioning at all, where they're completely in a depression after grief, that's that's a different story. I'm not saying it needs to be labeled like that, but yeah, there's certain treatments for that that's that are obviously you know help helpful, and um, but you know. One of the other things I talk about is this concept called parenting the memory. And for me, um, 
when after Cooper died and I was like screaming one day, you know, I'm still his mother. I'm still his mother. What am I supposed to do? And a therapist who's also a bereaved parent said to me, you will parent the memory. And that helped me so much because I need to keep Cooper with me. Mm -hmm. He needs to be with me. I can't, I'm not going to let him go. I can't let him go. Mm -hmm. Uh, I need him with me. And I do things in my life that, um, you know, I do different things. I mean, this article, writing this article, you know, I'm trying, I'm going to be writing a book as well. And, you know, this is all me staying with him, me being with him. And um, again, you know, we should be allowed to do or say whatever we want and not have, um, you know, again, people saying there's something wrong with it. I have in my apartment, every bit of my apartment is covered with a picture of Cooper. And and my husband doesn't particularly like it. And my daughter doesn't particularly like it, but I need it, you know, and I don't want somebody saying to me, oh, well, you shouldn't have all those pictures. You shouldn't do this. Um, A friend of mine, her son died and he um, she there was a bag of popcorn in his bed. And she refused to take it out for years. And people like, what are you doing? What are you? She just didn't want to. She wanted to keep the popcorn. It's like we things become represent, representative of our children. And we need to use that. We need to have that and work with that and be allowed to have that and be acknowledged as well, being acknowledged mm-hmm. for that, mm-hmm. that our children are still here. And, and for me, I, I mean, I, I, I can't remember if I said this in the article or not, but when I when Cooper died and I looked at him and I I thought he's not dead. And, and I and I thought I was just dissociating or in shock or something. Mm-hmm. But I realized and that's why part of this attachment grief, I knew that he would still always be with me. I felt it very profoundly in the midst of my horror, in the midst of my agony. I thought he's still here. There's he's still here. Um, and that was that was really one of the things that really helped me to um, to you know get to this place and be able to kind of formulate some of these ideas. Yes, yes. You know, Dana, as you're talking about the pictures and the popcorn in the bed and these different things, um, transitional objects came into my mind. And I I guess what I hear you saying is um, our children will remain present for us in different ways. And we're going to have different ways of holding that for ourselves and representing that, you know, and, and, and some of it will just be something internal inside of us, but it could also be something physical, a picture, whatever. I think part of the problem is sometimes people do things that other people can consider potentially like psychotic. And I'll give you an example. Okay. Um, I kept the nightlight every night. I turned the nightlight on in Cooper's room for years. Now, if I had gone to talk to somebody, a therapist, and I said, oh, yeah, I'm still turning his nightlight on. They might think, what the hell is wrong with this woman? Right. Why is she turning her night, the nightlight on? He's the kid's not there. And so I obviously turned the nightlight on because I needed to do that. And it made me feel better and it made me feel something. It gave me something. And I think that's part of the thing, part of the issue as well, that some of the things that we 
what we do or some of the ways that we're dealing with things might seem very odd or um, or problematic to, to certain people, even to therapists, you know, um, because most therapists don't, they don't, we don't really get a lot of training in grief work. We really, we really don't. Um, and there needs to be so much more of that. So, um, yeah, there's just a lot of, there's just a lot of different things that come up that happen or that you say, or that you're experiencing and people, people don't understand. And, and you're just trying to, again, just keep this connection and keep this person alive for you because you must, you know, people say you're, like I said, you're supposed to get over it. I think some, something in the DSM or something said, you know, like you're not supposed to yearn if you're not over it in a year, there's like something wrong with you, <laughs> you know, things like that. And it's just, it's, it boggles my mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, who, who gets over any kind of significant loss in a year? It's just, it just makes absolutely no sense. Yes. Yeah. And so normalizing, like I, you're drawing a clear distinction between I get like if you, you know, after a period of time, you're not functioning, you're, yeah. you're, you're majorly depressed. You can't get out of bed. You can't do things. You're, you're wanting to say, you know, I can't, I understand trying to work on that level of depression. On the other hand, ongoing there can be things that you might think are strange or odd or whatever that are actually sustaining that person that are helping that person in a more positive way and to not pathologize those things yeah exactly that's exactly what it is yeah yeah that's good to hear and i i think like you said we all um you know a lot of our listeners are therapists and i think that you know, hearing this perspective and being reminded of this, you know, we're so, we're so trained to look for like what's wrong and label it or something. (laughs) And I can, I can mention something else that happened to me years ago. And I was, I try, I, I cannot be around little boys. I just, I can't take it. You know, it's very, very hard for me. I, it's hard for me walking outside of my apartment and seeing any boy. It's so painful. Um, and I was sitting waiting for my daughter. Um, this was many years ago. And I looked over and there was like a kid who looked like Cooper from the back. And my first thought was like, I'm going to kidnap him. Okay, there he is. I'm going to get him. I'll kidnap him and then everything will be okay. And I realized in that moment, I understood why people do things, things that are so, that you can't understand how a person would do it, how a person could shoot their family and then themselves. You know, things that are the most atrocious, horrifying things. I understand now what that pain is and what you're dealing with on a level. And I believe that I are, I am a good therapist and that I, I understood a lot, but I had no idea that the, the, the sadness and the agony is at this kind of level where you are so desperate and where you are, there are just, as I said, there are days that you just don't think you can, can, you know, take another breath. A lot of problems, a lot of difficult times come up on anniversaries. I hate Mm -hmm. that word anniversary. I, I don't like that. 
Um, but, um, you know, and your body begins to feel it. I mean, I know he was killed in January and the minute it's January, I, f- I feel terrible, like in my body, it just mm-hmm. starts. And, and it's like, you feel this, there's this horrible anxiety that you feel. There's this horrible sadness coming up. Like, how is it possible? It's another year. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's a really, it's interesting in the sense of being a trauma therapist and really noticing how much of this stuff is in your body. It really stays in your body. Um, yes. And yes. It's, it's, it, you know, the body keeps the score. Like it's exactly uh-huh. you know, what we all know and what we've learned. And um, it's, it's, it's pretty unbelievable. Yes. yes. Well, Dana, thank you so much for this conversation and this vulnerability and courage to share your stories. Listeners, Dana and I are going to be continuing our conversation in uh, part two of this episode next week, talking more about practical, like what to do, what not to do. She's had some experiences of things that were really not helpful. <laughs> and then she'll she'll share with us. So so Dana, I look forward to continuing this conversation. Thank you. I do as well. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. 